Welcome to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. Our program is designed to offer solutions to those individuals with exceptional needs, plus families, professionals, and educators. Dr. Sean and his guests will share ideas that you can begin using immediately in order to promote a harmonious relationship and move forward. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sean Surface. Well, good morning, good day, good evening, whatever time you're tuning in and from whatever place, whether you're here with us on the West Coast or you're on the East Coast or you're in Saudi Arabia or the Philippines, apparently I have listeners all over, at least one. (laughs) Well, welcome to to the show today. And, you know, today I want to take on a, a subject that I've been thinking about a lot over the last couple months, actually, I think several decades, but and it's in regards to how people gain diagnoses around certain things, you know, and then specifically like how kids gain diagnoses and, and the multitude of diagnoses that are out there whether or not they lead to some type of treatment plan or some type of of intervention that is actually going to work and it coincides with that diagnosis and it's like okay when you have a uh, a kid with multiple diagnoses it's like which way do you go so in 1993, almost 30 years ago, I started doing all this. I started doing assessments and working as a school psychologist and you know, seeing a lot of kids and mostly kids with learning issues, reading, writing, and math problems, and a lot of behavioral issues, a lot of behavioral issues. And I would get called in to do an assessment and to determine whether or not the child had a learning disability that was keeping them from learning. And I would have to find a a certain point difference between their intellectual ability, like their IQ score, and their academic score. So there was this thing of one and a half standard deviations. Now, I'm not going to even explain what that is, but it's just a statistical term that we use in testing. And on IQ tests, that one and a half standard deviations was 22 points. So there had to be a 22-point difference between the kid's intellectual ability and how they scored on an academic test. And on top of that, now this is in California, this is not all states, but in California, you had to have a processing disorder. So, and the processing disorder had to explain why there was this discrepancy. And you had to show that. So we would spend all this time giving IQ tests, looking at different types of IQ tests, knowing, okay, well, this IQ test yields a real high score, usually with kids, or this IQ test yields kind of a uh, an average score, you know, whether they 
have language abilities or not. So I'm going to give them this test because I'll get a high IQ score. And I'm going to give them this academic test, which is really hard. And they're probably not going to do that great. And so now that I know I'm going to get that lower score. And then I'm going to look for something in reading. You know, okay, his decoding ability is not, you know, it, it got a, a score of 75 rather than, you know, 100. And so, okay, so now I can look at that one score and go, okay, this kid's got a disability in reading, decoding. And now I give a processing test and I find the right processing test. And maybe, you know, the kid has some memory issues or he's distracted or he's got some instructional frustration actually. But anyways, so I give a memory test and I talk kind of fast or maybe I talk too fast during the uh, delivery of the test and he doesn't score too well and then I go oh well he's got a learning disability in memory in sequential memory uh, which is interfering with his ability to decode which overall interferes with comprehension thus he's not doing well in school meanwhile you got this kid who is trying to go to school, is trying to learn. There's probably multiple variables at home. There's multiple variables in the classroom. And he's kind of gotten a reputation for not doing all that great in school, you know, and maybe he's now a third grader. And in the kindergarten and first grade, teachers kind of said, oh, you know, he's a very nice kid, but he didn't pay much attention or he wasn't able to keep up with the rest of the class. And rather than at that point putting in some individualized instruction in a reading, since we're talking about reading, no, they go to this model that special education had for a long time. And it still does in, a certain, in certain situations, and it's called a wait-to-fail model. And what it is is you have a kid has to get worse and worse and worse and worse before you actually intervene and give him some type of intervention. Makes no sense. So what started happening was in special education, we started noticing just around the end of the 90s and the beginning of the 2000s that there were just this abundance of kids in special ed. I mean, you'd have a school that have like 30% of their kids with special education labels. You know, it's not supposed to be really more than 8% of any population. You know, and then when we get into severe disabilities, that's like 1%, you know, and, and severe emotional disabilities is like 1%. And we were looking at more like 12%, 15% of kids with emotional issues. And it's like, really? Are there really all of these kids that have various disabilities? Or are we doing something that's not right? Are we not intervening when we can, when uh, it would be best for the kid because they would get some early intervention going? No. Instead, we teach to the average in the class, and then anybody who needs extra help, the only way to get it was through special education supports. And you had to wait to fail in order to get that. Okay. 
makes no sense. So what came about was this concept of response to intervention. It's like, did this kid get any interventions at all besides just the, the typical intervention that everybody gets? What we would call the universal intervention? Or did he, did, did he get any special tutoring? Did he get any kind of one-on-one uh, instruction? You know, did his instruction differ at all? Did he get anything different? And before we start calling kids disabled and, 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 and uh, uh, assessing them for what would really be tertiary types of, of support, like the, the primary type of support would be in the classroom, and then the secondary type would be maybe a little bit of tutoring or something. But the tertiary is now the kids in a specialized program maybe pulled out to be in that instructional program, missing out on other instruction. And why? Uh, because the model is set to have uh, this kid as the identified problem rather than the uh, uh, instructional methodology. Okay, so what happened? Well, school districts all across the United States and the federal government put together a new uh, uh, modified special education law, and what did it say? It said that no kid will go into special education without the documentation of prior intervention. So if you don't have any prior intervention, don't even start to tap. Now, you have a kid that's severely handicapped. Um, there's other diagnoses out there. Uh, it's different. But still, in regards to how we would intervene is still the same. You still, whether it's an emotional issue or academic issue or a kid who is with severe handicapping conditions, it's this idea that there's different levels of support. Like, for instance, if you do everything for a kid who has severely handicapping conditions, then you're going to infantile that kiddo. You're not going to allow him to build up any skills on his own. He's going to be very dependent on you. And you've got to go, hmm, why am I making him so dependent on me? So I get a little bit more into that in, in the later in the show. But it's so necessary that we have a system in place that has multiple tiers of support before we designate or, or identify an individual as the issue and put all the intervention in a specialized format on this person. Because it matters who it is. But realize that a kid who's already got like a lot of instructional frustration, you know, which is probably going to lead to some social frustration because he's not really going to be, you know, like up to par with everybody else. Uh, it's going to lead to the kid feeling bad about himself, low self-esteem, no desire to learn, no desire to be at the school. And it may start to cause behavioral issues, withdrawal, you know, and so... When we 
look at how we intervene, we have to make sure that what we're doing is to the best benefit of the person who's struggling and taking into account all of the support systems that are in place and whether they are functioning well for that individual and others or not. So, you know, we got a, a couple minutes here till, till a break. And what I want to do when we come back is I really want to get into this concept of identified patient. You know, one of the things that Carl Jung said about parenting, and he was really like the first psychodynamic person to talk about parenting. Yes, Freud definitely talked about parenting, but in a very different way. The, Jung talked about parenting in, associate, in association to environment and in association to how the uh, uh, parents had been raised would also uh, uh, result in how they raise their own kids. And we've talked about different types of parenting. But one of the things that Jung said is like, hey, before you start looking at this kid and deciding that this kid is the identified patient, make sure you look at yourself. And that doesn't mean just parent, okay? We can modify that and go, okay, teacher, doctor, psychologist, parent, sibling, let's make sure that you are fully looking at the situation and not placing all of this on this kiddo because most of the time a kiddo comes into an environment. So we uh, are at our first break and uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes. I want to share with you uh, some concepts that I've been thinking about, a little bit of a case study and some intervention ideas. So that's going to be kind of the uh, structure of when we come back. Okay, so we'll be back in a couple minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Life has its joys and challenges. At Total Programs, we can assist you with the challenges and show you that solutions are possible when good strategies are put into place. At Total Programs, we understand how difficult your day can be. And our goal is to assist your family in having the supportive, safe, and successful environment where love and joy can reign. We can design programs and strategies to bring you the success, safety, and support that you desire for your home, school, and community. Call 1-866-54-TUTOR or visit TotalPrograms.org. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. We'd love to encourage your participation in the program. Call into 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to seansurface at totalprograms.org. Now, back to this week's show. Okay, well, welcome back to our show. 
Uh, we've been discussing diagnosis and intervention, and specifically, uh, right before we went on the break, I was talking about this concept of, yeah, you have a person who's in need of support, but do they really, is the reason they need support all internal? Is it all about them? There's a concept called the identified patient, and in the identified patient, you know, one part of a dysfunctional system becomes the blame or becomes the focus. Maybe I'm saying it in a negative way because I have negative feelings around it. But, and I'll explain that in a minute, but there is an actual definition for identified patient. And let's let's listen to that. It's an identified patient is a clinical term often heard in family therapy discussions. It describes one family member in a dysfunctional family who expresses the family's authentic inner conflicts. Usually, the designated patient expresses their physical symptoms unconsciously, unaware that they are making overt dysfunctional family dynamics that have been covert and which no one can talk about at home. Occasionally, the identified patient is partly conscious of why and how they've become the focus of concern in the family system. As a family system's dynamic, the overt symptoms of the identified patient draw attention away from the elephants in the living room no one can talk about, which need to be discussed, such as the pending, such as a pending separation or a divorce or some issue. If covert abuse occurs between family members, the overt symptoms can draw attention away from the perpetrators. The identified patient is a kind of diversion and a kind of a scapegoat. Often a child, this is a split-off false carrier of a breakdown in the entire family system, which may be transgenerational, maybe a transgenerational disturbance of trauma. Now, That's, you know, a, a pretty, pretty good definition because in the beginning, it really talks about like who becomes designated as the patient. You've got this whole system that's dysfunctional. The, the parents aren't doing well, thus their kids aren't doing well. Maybe their kids are fighting amongst each other. And so what happens is is that the identified patient tends to draw attention away from that, tends to draw attention away from the dysfunctionality of the parent's marriage or the living situation that they're in or what the parents are engaging in, and they put it on the kid. you know. And maybe this is a situation where this has been many, many generations of how one generation has treated the next, that one person... Or sometimes it can be a couple kids, a couple people in the family unit. But usually there's a, you know, there's always like, hey, there's Cousin David. You know, you heard about him. You know, it's like there's always somebody. And, but you don't really know their story. And you don't really know why they have been designated to have the main substance of all the problem, and if you just fix them, then you'll fix everything else. So this concept of identified patient really comes from people, you know, dealing with their own traumas. 
you know, and not getting the fact that the stuff that they're dealing with, they're putting on their kid. All of a sudden now, they're making their kid feel like they've done something wrong. So say they have this crazy home environment. Well, that is going to affect the kid. There's no doubt. How can a kid live in a situation and not be affected by it? Uh, and then the parent will say, you know, well, I don't have any issues. I, you know, I'll do these interviews with the parent, you know, and, and they'll say, oh, no, I don't really have any problems. And I don't really see a lot of problems going on. All of a sudden, you know, he just became like this really difficult kid. So it was interesting because I I found this uh, little write-up about people who say that they're fine in a sense, that they have no issues. I want to read it to you. Um, my parent beat me as a child, but I'm not traumatized, said the man whose ex-partner reported him for physical violence. When I was a child, they left me crying alone until I fell asleep, and it was so bad I did not go out, said the man. It wasn't so bad. I did not go out, said the man who spends long hours in social networks affecting his sleep. They punished me as a child, and I'm fine, said the man who every time he makes a mistake says to himself words of contempt as a form of self-punishment. As a child, they put a heavy hand on me, and I suffer from trauma called education, said the woman who still does not understand why all her partners end up being aggressive. When I became caparious as a child, my father locked me in a room alone to learn, and today I appreciate it, said the woman who suffered anxiety attacks and cannot explain why she's so afraid of being locked in small spaces. My parents told me, they were going to leave me alone or give me to a stranger when I when I did my tantrums and I do not have traumas, said the woman who has prayed for love and has forgiven repeated infidelities so as to not feel abandoned. My parents controlled me with just a look and see how well I came out, said the woman who could not maintain eye contact with figures of authority without feeling intimidated. As a child, I got even with the iron cable, and I and today I'm a good man, even professional, said the man. His neighbors have accused the police for drunk hitting objects and yelling at his wife. My parents forced me to study a career that would make me money and see how well off I, I am, said the man who dreams of Friday every day because he's desperate in his work, doing something every day that is not what he always wanted. When I was little, they forced me to sit down until the, all the food was finished, and they even forced fed me. Not, not like those permissive parents, affirmed the woman who does not understand why she could not have a healthy relationship with food, and in her adolescence became, came to develop an eating disorder. My mother taught me to respect her good shanseolos, Chance, I always say this wrong. Chance Tezos, it's sandals. My mother taught me to respect her good old sandals to the point, 
said the woman who smokes a pack and a half cigarettes a day to control her anxiety. I thank my mom and dad for every blow and every punishment, because if not, who knows what would have happened to me, said the man who has never been able to have a healthy relationship and whose son constantly lies to him because he has fear. And so, you know, we go through life listening to people claiming to be good people without trauma, but paradoxically, we're in this socially violent, wounded existence. We wait until kids start to really get affected by our environments. And why do we do that? Because we know. We know that we're a part of it. We know that we cause this kid to have these issues. Or maybe we don't know it consciously, but we subconsciously realize it, and so we're trying to uh, hide from our own ego issues. It's a very hard way to look at things, and it's not about blame, but you can't expect a kid who is a child whose brain is not even ready to deal with certain concepts yet to enter into a world and have all these issues around him or her to deal with and to not be affected by that, that they're going to be just fine. And then if they are affected by it, it must be something about them. They must have some issue. I mean, myself and my sibling, we had major difficulties in our childhood. We had parents that were alcoholics, drug addicts. They had a very dysfunctional uh, uh, home life for us. And and my sibling was more uh, maybe withdrawn than I, but I tended to act out a lot. And I acted out at school because I wanted people to know that there was something going on and I didn't know how to explain it or how to deal with it and I didn't even understand my own behavior but my own behavioral issues because I'm a pretty smart person I don't really have behavioral issues as an adult so it's not some permanent disability thing but I definitely had issues of learning and 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 socializing as growing up and they were directly related to the environment that I was in and had my parents been able to get some type of support because maybe there was a lot of shame around that from their own parents you know not recognizing the fact that they also had contributed grandparents who were also alcoholics and addicts you know had contributed to this issue and they don't want they didn't want to look at that so they took pity reinforced the parent and instead placed it on myself and my sibling so yeah 50 years later we still deal with the challenges of self-esteem ego and and self-deprecation due to issues of being told that as a child we were the issue and I'm speaking for myself so that is why I share 
some of this information. And when we come back, we're going to do our second break. But when we come back, we're going to look a little bit at a case study that I recently uh, engaged in and have a little discussion around that. So we'll be back in a couple minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Life has its joys and challenges. At Total Programs, we can assist you with the challenges and show you that solutions are possible when good strategies are put into place. At Total Programs, we understand how difficult your day can be. And our goal is to assist your family in having the supportive, safe, and successful environment where love and joy can reign. We can design programs and strategies to bring you the success, safety, and support that you desire for your home, school, and community. Call 1-866-54-TUTOR or visit TotalPrograms.org. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. You are listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. We'd love to encourage your participation in the program. Call into 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to seansurface at totalprograms.org. Now, back to this week's show. Okay, and welcome back. Hope you've gotten yourself comfortable and been enjoying the first part of this. You know, I've been talking about diagnoses and how kids and people get certain labels and that those labels really, you know, mean something to them. Uh, They start to believe them, for one, and secondly... Uh, they don't often lead to uh, the right kind of treatment because it often leaves out a big part of the issue, which is where the kid lives, the family life, the home environment. So we were discussing 
identified patient and what that means. And it means that a kid can be part of the, the uh, uh, way of a family who is dealing with dysfunctional issues as adults. In a sense, scapegoating their child to believe that the child is the issue, the child is the patient and needs the intervention and the, the treatment and the medications and all of that. I was talking about my own life and frankly, my parents had major difficulties. Uh, my mother is no longer with us due to her drug addictions and uh, and my father, who is a good person, is very disconnected. And that disconnection was felt as a kid, and is and it's felt as an adult. So, how would we intervene with that? With me going to counseling and and talking to some person, a therapist, about you know that, or how about he and I working on that? So, what often happens is you know you have this kid who's dealing with issues. And he gets sent off to counseling. There's something in statistics called an effect size. And it's a way of calculating how somebody does before an intervention and after an intervention to see if the intervention actually uh, is working well. And you can take multiple uh, uh, studies and kind of mix them together to determine, like if you had like five, six different studies on how people did before counseling and how they did after counseling, and you had some kind of a rating, you could actually determine whether or not before, afterwards, whether or not they showed any gains in the areas that their, you know, their goals are or whatever. Well, with school counseling, one of the issues that we've seen is that there's actually now, what you want, of course, is a effect size that's positive, showing that there's been growth and change and whatever. Uh, unfortunately, what we found with school counseling is a negative effect size. And what does that mean? And I'm going on a study here from 20 years ago. I don't know that things have really changed. It means that when you go into school counseling, you might get worse. Why? Because there's a limited amount of time that the counselor actually sees the kid. So they actually may have 30 or 45 minute sessions once a month, you know, or maybe a, once every other week, every two weeks. And they go and they get the kid and they talk about, you know, how he's been behaving and how he's been interacting with others and how he's been doing in school and how he's been doing with his parents and how he's been doing with his brother and his sister. And never are all those other people brought into the situation. So the kid doesn't really get any quote-unquote better because it's just him working on his stuff. It's how he might react. Now, what can be taught is how to react while living in a toxic environment. But the counselor has to be ready to understand that, and since the treatment plan is held uh, by the parent as the the one who has the 
the authority to okay it or not, will the parent okay a therapy that's based on their dysfunctionality? So, but it's not always, you know, that you have this parent that doesn't know what they're doing and, and is, uh, you know, most parents do whatever they can to try and help their kid and they just get into situations and and they occur. Now, one of the things I want to tell you about a, a case that I recently was on, a 16-year-old boy who was coming home from a residential center after being away for about a year and a half, and um, he had multiple diagnoses, ADHD, intermittent explosive disorder, reactive attachment disorder, Tourette's, and something else that I'm blanking on. Oh, depression and anxiety. And so I start to work with this kid and from paperwork he looks like he's a behavioral you know huge behavioral challenge that he is um, very difficult individual to interact with and requires um, a lot of one-on-one -on -one support and um, specialized treatment including medications so I started interviewing parents and I started working with the kiddo and kiddo's very, very nice and interactive and I realize he's had a history of being very challenging and not the nice kid that was in front of me. And, but I started looking at different things. And, and I started listening to the stories that mom, specifically mom, but mom and dad were, were, were telling me and how he would interact with them and how he would consistently always need something. And that even from the time he was born, that he had problems feeding he had difficulties going to the bathroom, uh, so he didn't feel so well as a little one and required a lot of one-on-one -on -one attention all the time from very specifically mom, who already had one child, and this was a second child that was adopted, but adopted from the third day of birth, and so he never knew any other family or any other parents. And those three days were not a traumatic event for him before he was adopted. So I started hearing how he, his, his need for attention and his need for things was insatiable. And then the kid himself says to me, yeah, I used to like totally have a fit, a tantrum to get what I wanted. And I'd have a fit about it all day long. And then I'd finally get it. And then the next day, I'd want something else and start all over again. And it's like, okay, this kid was telling me that there were certain cycles 
that they had gone into. And mom was telling me about certain reinforcement cycles that she had gotten into of taking care of him. And it made me think of this, this old metaphor of the tiger, baby tiger. Baby tigers are so cute. So, so cute. Big blue eyes usually and soft, soft fur. And so the uh, little baby tiger, we know he needs to be fed. So we give him some food out of a bottle and he's so happy and he's so cute and rubbing his little belly and he's just a sweet little tiger. And then he gets a little bit bigger and he, he's hungry. And he taps you with his little paw, and you're like, oh, look at that, he's tapping, he's, he's letting me know he's hungry. And he even goes, meow. And he's like, oh, cute little meow that he's got. And so you feed him, and that goes on and on. And a couple months later, yeah, he's getting bigger and stronger, and he paws you again. Oop, accidentally, he draws a little bit of blood with one of his claws, just on accident, but just a little bit. And you go, oh, you didn't mean to do that. I know, baby, you didn't mean to do that. And he's got a little bit louder with his, we don't call it a purr anymore or a meow. It's a growl now. And, he's, and you go, oh, boy, you're turning into a big boy. You have a big, big growl. Well, and so you feed him because he has let you know he's hungry. And he continues to grow and get stronger and bigger. And you continue to feed him. And he becomes a little bit more aggressive because he likes that food now. He doesn't want to wait anymore. He wants it before you even know that he wants it. And so now he is doing all those things that you thought were cute. The pawing and the meowing, which is now growling. And you're kind of nervous about him now because he's not so easy to control. And he's real big. And so you start deciding that you're going to put him in a cage, you know, and you're going to give him some medication to calm him down. But maybe for one, you shouldn't have a pet tiger because he's too much for you to be able to handle. And if you do have one, maybe you need to get some support early on to realize that you're maybe feeding this tiger into behaviors you don't want. And that's the same thing with this kiddo, is that over time, he was just reinforced over and over again for this kind of maladaptive attention-seeking behavior. And until it turned into major tantrums and just constantly uh, trying to make this kid happy. So these parents weren't bad people. They were just trying to feed their kids' needs. So when I get back, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more. We have our final break, and we'll be back in a couple minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Life has its joys and challenges. At Total Programs, we can assist you with the challenges and show you that solutions are possible when good strategies are put into place. 
At Total Programs, we understand how difficult your day can be. And our goal is to assist your family in having the supportive, safe, and successful environment where love and joy can reign. We can design programs and strategies to bring you the success, safety, and support that you desire for your home, school, and community. Call 1-866-54-TUTOR or visit TotalPrograms.org. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. You are listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. We'd love to encourage your participation in the program. Call into 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to seansurface at totalprograms.org. Now, back to this week's show. Well, welcome back, Voice America listeners. And we've been discussing diagnoses and treatment options and how they don't always go hand in hand. And I was discussing a case study of a 16-year-old that I had recently assessed and who had multiple diagnoses. And so the last thing that I was discussing was this metaphor of a tiger and a baby tiger and what that you feed into and it becomes more and more aggressive. And you keep feeding into it because you think that's what you're supposed to do. You know, you're supposed to feed something. You're not supposed to let them starve or or have your kid have any kind of difficulty. So this kid and his parents got into this cycle of him being very demanding all the time. Not feeling well, by the way, a lot of the time also. He continued to have physical problems. And the parent really put him in specialized, you know, he wasn't doing so great in school. Pretty much after third grade, he stopped uh, uh, progressing because, frankly, at that point, all they did was focus on his behavior. They did counseling. They did medication. They did, you know, behavior plans. 
and they didn't do academic. So he was at, you know, at that point in third grade, he was at a third grade level. He was doing what he was supposed to be doing, but he was still having behavioral issues. Then, you know, we started to see some academic default, and there was academic default probably in second grade beginning, but, you know, again, the more that they started emphasizing the behavioral issues, the less they started uh, working on his academics. So now, you know, he he went off to specialized schools, and then that didn't work. Uh, he continued to have the problems, behavioral issues at home, because the interactions between family members became that. Became, you know, let's argue together, let's struggle together, and then let's get a break from each other together when we're all trying to de-escalate. And various counseling was done, um, some with the family, which was good, but mostly with just a kid. And, uh, and then he goes off to this residential center. And the residential center, I try and figure out, like, what is their actual treatment that they do there? And, you know, there wasn't any really specific treatment that I could say. They said that they had a type of acceptance uh, uh, therapy, uh, commitment and acceptance therapy, and which was good. Uh, it was a form of cognitive therapy to assist him. But they had him scheduled where he was doing stuff. And from 7 o'clock in the morning till 9 o'clock at night. He pretty much had things he had to do and and was, you know, he had school time and he had, you know, uh, uh, chore time and he had some fun time. And it wasn't all about his needs all the time. And he started to realize how other people have needs and his empathy levels, as reported by others, are very, very high. And they may have always been very high, but he didn't really understand how to empathize with others because so much attention was brought to himself all the time. So now you've got this kid who's a pretty nice kid uh, who's come back from the residential. He's had that break. He doesn't really argue with his parents in the way that he did because he realizes that his part of it and they're starting to realize their part of it. But like, for instance, you know, he had this diagnosis of reactive attachment disorder and what that is, is because most people aren't going to know like what reactive attachment disorder is or, it's, or how to treat it. So that's like a severe neglect issue. That's when somebody has been not given food, not given uh, warmth, not given a place, shelter, place to live, you know, and they are existing at a raw, uh, uh, primitive level where there is no love and attention and interaction. There is not enough food. There's not enough to keep you warm and so you feel anxious all the time. Well, this is not this kid's situation and it is not him. Tourette's, usually uh, it, it always has to have a remarkable area that is about motor tics. So most people think of Tourette's and think of the, the language and the cursing and whatever and the explosive, impulsive behavior. But it also has to have this motor tick component. And 
you know, with this kid, uh, yeah, when he gets a little bit anxious, you might see him uh, blinking a little bit, um, and you might see him, uh, well, I heard a lot of sniffing, realizing later that that was an allergy thing and not a, a motor or a neurological issue. So what's really important with this family is that they get family counseling together, time to work on what works well together and what doesn't work well together so that they can establish responsibilities on either end and interact with each other in a way that is empathetic towards the other person's needs and um, supportive of their own goals. Okay, and so that's the intervention. And at this point, it became a high-level intervention. What ended up happening from a from that special education uh, 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 overabundance of diagnoses and kids in it is this response to intervention program. And what it looked at specifically was like a three-tiered prevention. What can we do at a primary level for everybody to improve and to prevent harm? Okay, and then at a secondary level of prevention, how can we, like if something has gone wrong, how can we reverse the harm? Okay, how can we turn it back so that there is none? Maybe with some school counseling with a parent, you know, involved. And then if it's really, really tough and things have gotten really, really hard, okay, maybe we do need a tertiary type of intervention for more academically and behaviorally challenged, but that's going to be like 3 4% of people, not 50%. And so we continue to look at what is the best way to intervene and help kids right from the get-go when they're first starting, you know, in school and in life rather than waiting until there's this failure on their part or on the part of their home environment. We don't need to have multiple diagnoses in order to support a kid. We can look at what are we trying to do right now? Where are we at with this individual? And where do we want to get to? So for instance, if he's having difficulty reading and and he's showing instructional frustration, behavior problems around it, let's not worry about the behavior problems. Let's teach him to read. Let's get some reading intervention going, and I bet you you're going to see less of those behavioral problems. So uh, next time, we will uh, continue our discussion of how to best support kids and how to best support parents, especially in this time of COVID when all the supports are are home-based. And there are many things that you can do to support your kid in your own environment. So remember that on strategies and solutions, taking on the challenge with Dr. Sean, we're about your success. And know that each day can be a new future you dream of having in your life. See you next time. Blessings. so much for listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. 
Be sure to join us again next Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a great week.